Good afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to live from your true self through all of life's twists and turns. And you'll be challenged to lean into the mysteries of life to find your own deepest wisdom. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. We're going to be talking today, like we did last week, about the mistaken Christianity, and this is the part three of that. The first was a summary, and the second was uh, uh, more specific. So last week we began to look into the specific root language, and the ancient book we know of today is the book of Genesis. What we learned was that some of the most basic concepts in the mistaken Christianity, or what I call the mistaken Christianity, which is really the literalistic teachings of fundamentalism, are based in mistranslations of that text. Today, in part three, we will continue that discussion, adding more to our understanding of what we're actually being told in the sacred text of the Christian Bible about being spiritual beings having a human experience. So stay here for the whole show today. You won't want to miss this. So we talked last week about what happened at the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil, which we discovered to be uh, not a tree at all, but a thought in the mind of humanity. The Garden of Eden is a consciousness of of bliss and understanding of ourselves as divine beings uh, in, uh, in our consciousness as well. So neither one of those two things have to do with place, but rather with consciousness. And um, we discovered that, that Eve ate of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, which is not knowledge of good and evil, the moral, the moral good and evil, but rather uh, the, the knowledge, the understanding, the coming to reveal oneself to oneself that comes from suffering and joy. And uh, so we understand that this tree of knowledge is going to provide for us a conscious journey where we begin to understand ourselves as separate from the divine when previously we'd understood ourselves as one with the divine. And that knowledge is going to help us reveal who we actually are to us. And, uh, and so... We chose not to eat of the tree of, not, of life where we could have just gone on being divine beings without human bodies. But what we chose instead to do was to develop uh, consciousness of ourselves and to be in form so that we could eventually finish the creative process by uniting form with formlessness. We talked about that last week. So let's go on from there. So once Eve receives into the body-mind the consciousness or trans state of duality by eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There is established a great divide between awareness of ourselves as divine and awareness of ourselves as separate from the divine. Awareness of ourselves as divine has been placed in the unconscious, while awareness of ourselves as separate from the divine is now the only thing we can consciously experience of ourselves. We have come now to know ourselves as separate from the divine, and the door is shut and becoming aware of the possibility that we are divine. Remember that the word etz, which is the word for tree, the Hebrew word for tree, has as it root as it at its root the word to shut, the words to shut. So Eve, as the feminine receptive capacity of the human psyche, has received a new knowledge of herself as human. She has received it into the innermost parts of her being, which Eve represents. And that's the innermost part of her being which she can, of which she can be conscious. The psyche now believes itself to be separate from the divine, and humanity is now thusly defined. <clears throat> Eve has begun for us 
<clears throat> excuse me, the journey of the duality trance state. From the perspective of oneness, however, in which we are not separate from the divine, we can clearly see here that it was Elohim who moved our consciousness of ourselves as divine beings into an enclosed space and time in the human consciousness. Remember, last week we talked about the word east, that, that he had moved man into the, in, into the east of the garden, in the Garden of Eden, and east meant the past. It doesn't mean east a place or, or a direction. It means the past in memory, before time. So we knew that that's when time came into the picture, or at least that's the first mention of time coming into the picture. And, and so we understand now that that was Elohim, or God, moving our consciousness of ourselves as divine beings into the past. And that prepared the way, as we saw last week, for Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we must conclude then that this decision made by the divine is part of the creative endeavor, the process of which we're being informed by the entire story of the Garden of Eden. That creative endeavor bodes the question, if our consciousness of ourselves as divine can be placed in the past, then what of today? The answer is that today we can consider another option than the one that is now in the past. We can consider the possibility that we're no longer divine or that we don't see ourselves as divine. Here we began the brave creative process of joining form with formlessness through the difficult journey of duality. As form, we are wholly new to the history of the universe. Before us, there is a vast history of formlessness. The shift that happened when form was created by formlessness, the purpose of which was ultimately to unite form with formlessness, was a shift that was meant to be carried on until we can actually unite form with formlessness. This union is both the source and the goal as described by union psychologists, as, as that, that which is the self to be understood to be the source and the goal of human life. In that process, we are to differentiate and then peel away from our sense of self all of those projections and interjections that have been incorporated as identity. That same process will occur ultimately as a result of the duality trans state. We are here to creatively experiment with this completely new reality of form. As we all know, all truly good scientific experience, experiments start with a null hypothesis. In this case, that null hypothesis is that formlessness is divine, but form is not. From the perspective that human, that, excuse me, that the union of form with formlessness is total oneness, is the ultimacy of our journey here on planet Earth, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was meant to bring us to the duality trance state in which we saw ourselves, our lives, and all of Earth's existence as separate from the divine. When Eve took the fruit of that tree, encouraged by the metaphor that is a serpent, she internalized that dualistic trance state, making it seem to be the only truth. Now she and later Adam no longer saw themselves as divine beings. Therefore, they could not stay in the Garden of Eden, the consciousness of their divine nature, for that place was now shut out of human consciousness. The separation is explained to the intellect by a grand battle between what has come to be called good and what has come to be called evil, which we saw in, our, uh, in the show last week had been translated, mistranslated to mean some kind of moral form of good and evil, but what we understood to be the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the words to, were not translated in some kind of moral form of good and evil, but rather the agreeable and the disagreeable pleasant and the unpleasant, the, the, the joy and the suffering. 
In the trans state of duality, we believe that the divine is good and man is evil. We believe that we are limited and time-bound and that ultimately we die. These are components of our null hypothesis. We can prove it true by looking around us at the world that seems, because we are looking at it through the lenses of the duality trans state, to be reflecting back to us the truth that indeed we are separate from the divine and life is broken off into these all-consuming categories of good and evil. Just as Elohim promised, when we ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we began to experience death. According to the tree of life, however, which still exists in that enclosed place in the human psyche, we are one with the divine and no one dies, for how could the divine die? So what we see here is, I'm just sort of summarizing a little bit to, to, to help us understand that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not a, a tree that was we were eating of uh, as and, and incorporating the potential for immorality into our lives. We were incorporating into the, our lives the possibility that we could be tr- separate from the divine. And because we were separate from the divine, or we thought we were separate from the divine, we could experience suffering. Prior to that, we could not experience suffering because we were with the divine, and there was no suffering in that realm. <clears throat> so now we can, and that that experience is going to help us come to know ourselves as form united with formlessness, which is the goal and the source of our human experience. So we are already divine. We are already form and formlessness, but we don't know that. And what this experience with duality is helping us to do is come to know that over time. Our scientists have already figured out that, that formlessness and form are one. They've already discovered that form is made up of formless particles. You can't even use the word particles there, quarks and, and all kinds of other little tiny little minuscule things that aren't things. They're formless. They're formlessness. And this has been discovered by our, our scientists of late. And, and so we already know, we are beginning to understand that, at least on the scientific level. But we don't really understand what that means about who we are. And what really is happening to us here on planet Earth and what we're here to do. We are here to finish the creative process. It is not yet complete. The traditional Bible tells us, or the traditional translation of the Bible tells us that um, the creation process is done. It's finished in six, six days and then God rested. But actually, uh, that the, the process was begun at that point. And it, it continues to this day and has not yet finished. We will not be created fully until we understand ourselves and can live in form as formlessness, can live in form as divine beings, as the divine beings we are. So what happened when they added the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Uh, there were some so-called curses given to, Ma- to, to Adam and Eve. And... Um, and so we're going to talk about those. We talked about the one for Eve last week, and we'll, we'll go over that again a little bit today just so we can put them all together. Uh, but the, the warning given to a masculine aspect of humanity, which is represented by Adam. Remember, Adam and Eve don't represent people. They represent masculine and feminine aspect of the human collective consciousness. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, 
for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Traditionally, these verses tell us of our just punishment for our service to Satan in eating of that tree, pronounced first by God as a prophecy and then later followed up with Adam and Eve's banishment from the Garden of Eden. This interpretation can be clearly seen from theologian Adam Clark's interpretation, the man, uh, the man being, clear, being the last in the transgression is brought up last to receive his sentence. So Clark sees it as a sentence, a punishment. If we look closer, however, we see another possibility. Metaphysically, both Adam and Eve are being told that because they no longer see through the eyes of their divine nature, they will struggle and have pain. Rather than eating of the tree of life, they chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to incorporate into the body-mind the trans state of duality in which they utterly believed themselves to be separate from the divine and could now experience both pleasant and unpleasant, harm and harmlessness. Eve, representing the feminine receptive aspect of humanity, uh, received into the body-mind the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then she gave it to, to Adam. So what Adam's being told there is that because we believe that we are separate from the divine, we, are, we, we believe that we have to struggle for our food. We have to struggle to make it, to be okay. Uh, all of these things were provided previously in the Garden of Eden. Uh, in, in the consciousness of ourselves as divine beings, everything was already provided for us. But now that we believe ourselves to be separate from the divine, we believe that we must separately provide for ourselves. And that concept is what creates the suffering that, that Adam is being told about. Now that you believe you're separate from the divine, now you think you're going to have to suffer for, to, for your supper. Uh, you're not going to be able to, to get things easily. So Eve... Uh, has another punishment given to her, and her punishment means that uh, that she's well. Let, let's just go over that. What happens there? The fruit that she ate is uh, actually the word pyri, which we talked about last week, meaning produce, offspring, children, progeny, and fruit of actions. It's rooted in para, which means to bear fruit, to be fruitful, to branch off, to cause to bear fruit, to make fruitful, and to show fruitfulness. The fruit of knowledge of good and evil is the life we produce by thinking ourselves separate from the divine. So when she ate of the fruit, she was eating of a life that we produce by thinking of ourselves separate from the divine. Not only is it the fruit, however, but it's also the ability to produce such fruit. Once fully developed, enveloped in the duality trance state, we have the ability to produce more duality. So this changes the meaning of the phrase tree of knowledge of good and evil from a tree that produced good and evil to include a tree that is produced by good and evil. The thought of good and evil and the thought that is produced by good and evil are both represented here. So again, we're not talking about moral good and evil. We're talking about rejoicing and suffering. If good represents our joy and evil represents our suffering, then the thought that we may suffer produces suffering and the suffering produces the thought that we may suffer, and likewise with joy. These thoughts amount to the journey of duality. This journey is the learning to know the learning by experience, the becoming known, the self-revelation that is described in the word yada, which is the root word of the word knowledge in the, in the phrase, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In order to take that journey, Eve and then later Adam had to come to see differently. Their seeing, their perception of life had changed. That is why we use the terms duality trans state, because in this new way of seeing, this new vision, they no longer saw who they were as divine beings. When they ate the fruit, they entered a trance in which they thereafter saw everything inside and outside of themselves as separate from the divine, 
where once they had seen themselves as divine, as we said last week, this evidentiary demarcation line was the time at which they saw themselves as subtle body, which we're going to talk about some more in just a minute, rather than divine formlessness. Now they knew themselves as beings without a body who must now have a body if they were to begin the journey in which they could see themselves as separate from formlessness, they were also. They had become entranced with a new central organizing force. Additionally, the feminine creative impulse, which receives its creativity from within, will now have to go through the pain as part of the creative endeavor. So this is what he said to the woman. I will greatly multiply your pain in childhood. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We went over this last week, but I want to talk about it again because I want to put it all together. A literal interpretation of this passage means that women will have labor pains when she gives birth, and she will be ruled by her husband. Since that's true in our experience, it's easy to limit the meaning of that alone. We see something quite different, however, in the root language used for the word childbirth. The word is heron, which means physical conception, pregnancy, and conception. It's rooted in hurrah, which also means to conceive, to become pregnant, to bear, to be with child. It also carries the more masculine progenitor, and it also means to conceive, to be conceived, or to contrive or devise. It's obvious then that we're talking about more than just physical labor pains and birth childbirth. We're also talking about the pain of being a progenitor, the originator or creator of anything. The pain of contriving, the pain of devising, the pain of bearing, the pain of conceiving of anything. So, so also it says that, that uh, women will be subject to their husbands and the husbands will dominate them utterly. Uh, this idea is based entirely in the duality of good and evil in which evil deeds must be punished. All a female progeny is to be punished for his decision to eat of the tree of which she has explicitly told not to eat. This is a big part of, of our uh, misogyny today. This idea, this ancient, ancient idea that woman, the woman sinned, it's all her fault, and she has to be punished, and part of her punishment is to subject herself to the will of men, or specifically her husband. But we see something different in the words that we're going to talk about just briefly and come back to after the break. The word desire, that she's going to desire her husband, is shukwa, which means desire, longing, craving, as a woman, a man, or a man, a woman, or a beast to devour. The word derives from the primitive word shuk, which means to be abundant, to give abundance to, or to overflow. Further, the word commonly translated to be husband is aish, which means man, male, human being, person, servant, mankind, champion, great man, whosoever, or each. It also includes the word husband, but it's just one of the many words to describe the masculine idea. There definitely is a craving perhaps even an abundant craving or a craving for abundance. But what's being craved is not a husband, but the externality of the masculine archetype. So this has a strong potential meaning. He's a man. He's a male. He's a human being, a servant, and a collective mankind. He's a champion, a great man. From a metaphorical perspective, then, this poetry is telling us about a craving for the externalities represented by the masculine archetype. And we're going to talk about how we might translate that sentence differently when we come right back, right after this break. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. When you 
learn to see things from a spiritual perspective. It changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you looking for a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Do you want your business to thrive? Do you want to enjoy better relationships and find your purpose? Tune in every week to Stepping Into the Tenda Dao Chung Life Transformation with Dr. and Master Shaw with host Diana Gold Holland, who will share the wisdom of Master Shaw. You'll hear from inspiring teachers and listen to testimonials about life transformation. Stepping Into the Tenda Dao Chung can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. in the West and 6 p.m. in the East on Voice America Empowerment. Life can be confusing at times. There can be uncertainty, disappointment, and an inability to clearly see where you're headed. But it doesn't have to be this way at all if you understand how to take the next step in your life. Tune in to Living the Miracle with your hosts, Michael and Raphael Tamora. We'll help you to find the deeper meaning that awaits you in your life, have certainty in yourself, and learn to be clairvoyant. Listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll free. 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at AndreaMatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today about the mistaken Christianity, the literalistic teachings of fundamentalism, and understanding that some of them, a lot of that uh, understanding is based in mistranslations of that text. But before we go any further, I want to tell you about a Super Soul Sunday coming up this coming Sunday, October the 6th at 11 a.m. Eastern and Pacific, in which Oprah Winfrey has a conversation with Joy Harjo, the first Native American to be named United States Poet Laureate. They discuss Harjo's tumultuous life, her career as an award-winning poet, and her newest book of poetry, An American Sunrise. Here's a clip from that show. What does that mean for you to be named America's Poet, for you to be named America's poet. The first thing that came to mind was it honors Native people. Yes. And my ancestors and the ancestors that that feed the poetry, that feed, um, that have kept us alive mm-hmm. and thriving through all of it. Yes. Beautiful. I can't wait for that show. I love uh, Harjo's work and I love poetry. And uh, speaking of poetry, that's that is what the book of Genesis is, it's a poem, a long poem, and should be understood from its metaphorical perspective, not in literalistic terms. In that same vein, what we said about Genesis 3.16 was that uh, Eve was told she was going to be punished with pain in childbirth and that her husband would rule over her. But a much more accurate uh, um, and deeper meaning might sound something like this. 
The internal shall turn itself outward, shall overflow its internal boundaries, deeply desire and live only for and in the external world and be ruled by it. So in other words, the idea that the literal woman should be ruled by a literal man, specifically her husband, turns out to be completely false. Duality has turned us inside out so that we crave only the external to fulfill us when our truest fulfillment lies within. Our abundance, our joy, our peace, our truth is found within. And then and only then should we be carried to the external world by the masculine energy. We see here, however, that the masculine energy, the external energy, now warped by the duality trans state, has overwhelmed the internal so that we hardly even see it anymore. In order to more fully understand Eve's actions, we're going to have to become acquainted with another character in this story, the serpent. According to traditional thought, the serpent is a slithery Satan, the tempter, the deceiver, the liar. Actually, however, the root language used in the same very text from which many translators have taken their suppositions reveals that there is no lie, no deception, and no temptation in the serpent's statements. Here are the serpent's comments from chapter 3 of Genesis. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from the tr- any tree of the garden? And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not, you shall sh- surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The first statement is a simple question, and the second is the ultimate truth. We do not die. The third one is troubling to most people, for it promises that Eve will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's also possible, however, that when we know the true nature of good and evil, we are like God. Our eyes are opened, and we do see ourselves for who we really are, divine beings in whom there is neither good nor evil. Genesis 2.17 has been translated as God's command to man. But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, I'm going to try to pronounce this in Hebrew. I'm not very good at pronouncing the Hebrew language as much as I am about writing it or, or, or understanding it. But it sounds a little bit like this. Muth, muth, min, akal, yom, kia, min, akal, lo, ro, tob, dot, etz. Yeah. The literal translation of the Hebrew sentence is actually laid out like this. So it's, it starts with the end, to die, to die from, or out of, on account of, off, on the side of, a sense, above, then, so that, so that not, and from its root meaning, a portion, to eat, so we've got to die, to die, out, out of, or account of, or off, on the side of, sense, above, then, not to, so that not, to eat which also means to devour, to burn up, to feed, to consume, to slay, to destroy, to be eaten, to be devoured, to be consumed, to be destroyed. Day is the next word, which also means time, year, as defined by evening and morning, lifetime, period, temporal references, or its root, to be hot. That, which also means for, because, when, as, though, as, because, that, but, then, certainly, except, surely, since, yea, indeed, when, if, Though, but only, nevertheless, from, uh, to eat, not, which also means no, nothing, before, as of time, bad, evil, which also means disagreeable, malignant, bad, unpleasant, evil, giving pain, misery, unhappiness, worse than worse, sad, unkind, injury, wicked, or its root word, raw, which also adds what has already been said, the idea of breaking or shattering or being broken. Good. Which, also, which means pleasant, agreeable, rich, valuable in estimation, appropriate, becoming, better, glad, happy, prosperous, good, understanding, kind, benign, but literally a region in the east of Jordan of, the, of uncertain location, 
Knowledge, which means perception, skill, discernment, understanding, wisdom, rooted in yada, to know, to learn to know, to perceive, to know by experience, to know how to be made known, be, be or become known, to be wise. I could go on and on. So you can see there's so many various possibilities for how that sentence could be translated. And of course, Hebrew is actually read right to left, not left to right, like we read English, which would make it leaving out all the parenthetical possible interpretations, any and all of which could also be accurate translations. Here's what that becomes. Tree knowledge, good evil, not to eat from that to eat to die to die. That's the, the explicit translation as close as we can get it without looking into the various interpretations. Further, and, uh, uh, and as we've said already, the interpretation for the word good and evil, pleasant and unpleasant, or joy and suffering, tree, which means shutting, and knowledge, which means to make oneself known or to, real, real, to reveal oneself, add much more to the meanings of these words. One does not have to be an expert in language to see the difficulty in coming to a true understanding of this complex sentence. Yet, Many of us, perhaps all of us on some archetypal level, has based our entire worldview on which we have based everything else in the world on that single sentence. Everything we believe to be true about duality comes from the metaphor presented by this tree, whether we're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, or all too often even of another faith that does not reference this story. Somehow, we brought evil into the realm of possibility at this point. For if Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the tree, then they disobeyed. According to traditional thought, because of that disobedience, the entirety of human experience shifted so that every man born thereafter was born into original sin. As can be seen, however, this interpretation is a very shallow one when we consider the possibility inherent in walking through the duality trance state in much the same way that Jung described as walking through the suffering and torture of life in order to integrate with the self that is both source and goal. What if instead this sentence is really saying something more like this? Death will come as a result of eating and being eaten by the journey on which you are about to embark, the journey of knowledge of duality. This changes things entirely. In fact, what it means on a metaphysical level is that because humanity had incorporated the duality translated into its way of living life, as in the tree of uh, thought of life as it exists in divine consciousness, was going to be harder to access. This was not necessarily a command not to disobey, but rather a statement of fact. If you decide to take this path, this is what will happen. Therefore, what we have traditionally seen as Eve's deception by the devil, which becomes her deception in sin, might actually be seen very differently. Perhaps then it is we, rather than Eve, who have been unwittingly deceived by our traditional teachers. From the translation of the root language that we've discussed, it's possible to see that not only did humanity consume the duality translate so that it became a biological component of the body-mind, but we were also consumed by it, so that it has become a central organizing force in our lives. All the suffering we experience is a result of this choice, a choice that is essential to our journey to know ourselves as both form and formlessness. According to Carl Jung, the suffering of uniting the opposites is part of the integration process that must take place on an individual basis and then naturally on a more global basis. What did we produce with this choice? Several things happened right away. The first thing that happened was Adam and Eve realized that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings, it says in three, uh, Genesis 3-7. Later, after Elohim had finished prophesying their future, then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and then clothed them. Most traditionalists regard their awareness of their nakedness as a consequence of their sin. 
They teach that Adam and Eve's sin exposed what was once innocent nakedness as now somehow perverse nakedness. Now they needed clothing, whereas prior to that they did not. There is another alternate interpretation of this nakedness, however. The argument against traditional interpretations is found in the root language itself. The term for naked in these verses is eram, the adjective naked, but rooted in aram, which means to be subtle, shrewd, crafty, beware, take crafty counsel, to be or become shrewd. From a metaphysical perspective, these words add an entirely new dimension to the whole of the story. Not only can we see that they began to see things differently from the perspective of duality, that shrewd and crafty trickery of the mind, but we might also see that the thing that was missing prior to their eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the physical body form. Adam and Eve did not know prior to their induction into the duality trance state that they'd been living in a subtle body, an etheric body, a body made in the image of the divine, but that had not yet fully formed as a physical body made from dust, which... So the body made in the physical divine, on the image of the divine was made in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The body formed as a uh, physical body made from dust was made in 2, 7. But that might still have been a, a subtle body. Dust is tiny particles. So we don't know that, that it was actually the flesh and blood that we have now. They are now inducted into the duality trance yet their bodies were still subtle bodies. That nakedness, that awareness of subtle body must have been very frightening to them in the duality trance much the same way that a ghost would be frightening to us. So they had to guard themselves by trying to put on something physical to cover the subtle body. Elohim then created a body form for humanity. They made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. The word skin is our, the skin of humans or animals. It is just as easy to interpret this as a development of flesh and bone bodies that would evolve to the bodies we know today as it is to interpret it as the skin of animals. But what has happened is the translators interpret it to mean the skin of animals. The only reason we would interpret it as skin of animals is if we can also believe that they sinned and they were being kicked out of the literal place for their choice to disobey an omnipotent, omnipresent God who, by his own confession, has no need for our services anyway. Here's what he says about that in Psalm 50, uh, verses 10 through 12. For every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. If the divine does not need us to obey, then why would obedience be so important? If the divine does not need our compliance, then perhaps there's another purpose to our stay here on planet Earth other than that proposed by the traditional mindset in which we must find a way to be good in order to unite or be close to the good God. When Elohim gave us physical bodies, perhaps we were instead assigning ourselves the task of uniting form with formlessness by walking through the duality trance state in form in which we were to reveal who we actually are as divine beings in form. The assignation was done by giving us freely physical incorporation in which to live out this experience with duality. We would do this by experiencing every single possibility inherent in the incorporation of the trans state of duality. We can do that because we live incorporated in what appears to be a finite, limited, and temporary structure, which seems for all practical purposes to be separate from its formless divine nature. So now what we're saying is that the, it was very important for us to develop a physical body so that we could have this finite form to later unite with formlessness, or at least consciously unite with formlessness. It was already united, but we just didn't know it. 
So let's begin a little talk about the serpent. One more thing happened after the first humans incorporated duality into the conscious and experience of the mind, body, and mind. Elohim cursed the serpent. This notion of the serpent as an aspect of the devil or Satan, ultimate evil, can only be described as evil. It's so common that it's very difficult for us to even imagine a different motif for this story. If we look at the history of the serpent down through the centuries, however, we see that the serpent has been seen, has been seen as many things, and often its symbolic meanings are contradictory to each other. Indeed, Barbara Walker, author of A Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets, tells us that the serpent was originally identified as the great goddess herself. Hinduism's Ananta, the infinite, was the serpent mother who embraced Vishnu and other gods during their dead phase. She was also Kundalini, the inner female soul of man in serpent shape, coiled in the pelvis, induced through proper practice of yoga to, yoga to uncoil and mount through the spinal chakras toward the head, bringing infinite wisdom. So we see there that the snake is the serpent is actually a good uh, something that is very powerful and gives us wisdom. So some people would call that good, but we see that the serpent in this story is evil. We later see the serpent in the Bible and the text of the Bible in the Book of Numbers as a very important symbol for our healing. When the people in the Israelites were told to look at the bronze serpent on the staff and be healed. So the serpent has taken on many meanings, but we have interpreted this serpent in the Garden of Eden as to be evil. But let's talk a little bit more about what Walker says. Walker goes on to say that the serpent has been seen many times in many different ways throughout history, including the mighty serpent goddess Machinoy, which is the mother of the Chinese, the Indian serpent goddess Kadru, the serpent who guarded the Book of Thoth, hidden in the underwater palace, the Egyptian serpent goddess Mahin, the enveloper, similar in nature to Kundalini and Ananta. The birth and death goddesses Isis and Nephthys, who became the dual serpent mother of life and afterlife. And the Akkadian goddess Ninhursad, who was thought to give life to the dead. Among other historical symbols, the serpent was worshipped in Palestine long before the Jewish religion began. And much of Gnostic literature praises the serpent of Eden for bringing the light of knowledge to humanity which is exactly what we're talking about today. The light of knowledge will be had when we finally come to know ourselves as form and formlessness united as one. Given these various serpentine themes throughout history, the traditional interpretations that describe the ser this serpent as Satan in disguise might need to be called into question. One of the passages in the Bible that seems to add merit to the traditional view, however, is found in Genesis 3, 14 through 15. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you, more than the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. If Elohim always knew that Adam and Eve were going to be tempted of that devil, the serpent, and have to be driven from the garden, then why was there a need to punish the serpent for doing so? If the serpent is not evil, then why does Elohim appear to be so angry with it? If, however, we believe that the Garden of Eden was in the, within the mind of man and the soul of humanity and that the tree of, knowledge is a, a tree of knowledge and life were also to be found in that same place, then we have to assume that the serpent is likewise within the mind and soul of humanity. So we're looking at the serpent now as a metaphor instead of a literal serpent who's literally saying evil things to Eve, whispering in her ear that she should go against God. 
So we're going to talk some more about that right after this break. So stay tuned for more right after this. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Take a closer look at yourself in the present. Your body has its own GPS system designed to help you follow your intuition, align your thoughts, and set your own course. Host Dee Lee is here to be your external guide to this discovery. Take a break, a mindful space to pause, and help bring forth the balance that your life deserves. Listen live for Mindful Space to Pause every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's quite common for people to wonder whether happiness is real or just an illusion. Yet we all have an inner voice that is telling us that we need to change. Where to begin? Start by taking time out of your schedule every week for Revelations and Wonders, Secrets to Life and Happiness with host Fabian Edju. There is a true beauty within your soul and happiness flows from inside. We'll help you find that new confidence within. Listen every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. As we age, there are certain situations which we all must face. Care and treatment don't always measure up to what it's supposed to be, and there are many questions that need to be answered. Tune in to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy with hosts Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. Seniors deserve to have a more fulfilling life, and we'll bring you the answers that you need to hear to make it happen. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll-free. 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back for the final segment of our show today, talking about that serpent that was in the Garden of Eden. What we said thus far is that Adam and Eve did not sin, that uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not a tree of knowledge of good and evil that has to do with morality, but rather the, uh, the, the tree of experiencing, the thought of experiencing suffering and joy as a part of a journey toward self-revelation, to where we've come to know who we are as divine beings. Um, through the duality trans-state. So we took on the duality trans-state into our biology, into our psychology, and we discovered, we are begun the discovery process of understanding ourselves as divine beings. And we won't finish that process until we have come to know who we are as divine beings. And that's the journey we're all on. We're all collectively doing that together and individually. And that's what we discovered thus far. But let's talk a little bit more about this serpent. And so what we've said is, serpent is also a metaphor for what's going on in the mind and soul of humanity. And if that's true, then we have to consider the possibility that the serpent represents 
kundalini energy, as mentioned by Walker earlier, Barbara Walker, as we've mentioned her quote earlier. If it's true that serpent represents the kundalini energy that can awaken us or lie coiled and dormant at the base of the spine, then the fact that the serpent is found within the thought of duality or the tree of knowledge of good and evil has meaning of consequence. One interpretation of this would be the idea that the doors to the chakras were all wide open when we as Elohim created the first visages of formlessness as form, but closed as a result of this new trance state. As we've seen, both the tree of not life and the tree of knowledge both represent a shutting in the word etz. If we had chosen the tree of life, we have shut out the possibility of living in the trance state of duality. But since we chose the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we shut out the possibility of eating of the tree of life, of living fully conscious of who we are as divine beings, at least until we come full circle into that knowledge through the necessary journey of duality. So we could have chosen the tree of life, but we would have remained in the subtle body, and the creation process would not have been complete. We chose instead the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which allows us to experience ourselves as separate from the divine so that we can begin to unite the process of consciously uniting form with formlessness in a way that we really truly come to understand. This means that our conscious experience of the chakras was also closed, which means that kundalini energy was made inaccessible to the conscious mind, lying coiled and dormant at the base of our spine at the level of the first chakra. Therefore, now, after Eve and Adam have incorporated the duality trance state as the controlling center of the psyche, this prophecy given by Elohim tells the serpent that instead of living from the spine, where the chakras are found in the body of matter, kundalini energy must now live from the belly, from the hunger for soul, from the need to digest the concept of duality before we can complete the circle. There are some other compelling things to be found in that passage in Genesis 3, 14 through 15 about the serpent's future, which cannot be left out of this argument. In verse 15 we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This verse holds a great deal of significance, which has been discussed down through the centuries by various theologians with various interpretations, mostly having to do with enmity between Satan and humanity. Another interpretation begs to be considered, however. The fact that there will be enmity between the woman, the feminine energy, and the inner terrain of humanity, and the kundalini energy, makes perfect sense if we realize that we have been trying to live from an external frame of reference since the time when Eve partook of the tree of knowledge. If the serpent represents our quite natural kundalini energy, and Eve represents the inner receptive world, which would take us directly to that soulful kundalini, then this statement that there would be enmity between the woman and the serpent is an appropriate metaphor, for it's telling us that the doorway to the inner world is now blocked by the duality trans state. Again, this is the shutting to which the tree of knowledge refers. When we incorporated duality into the mind and body of humanity, we shut down our natural access to the divine energy that is us, thus relegating our deepest essential nature to the unconscious. As noted previously, the idea was to allow us to fully experience duality, which we could not do if we were fully acquainted with ourselves as divine beings we were. Becoming aware of ourselves as divine beings in form is a feminine or internal experience. Duality keeps us out of touch with the internal so that we can believe that we're separate and distinct from the divine and fully experiment with that notion over many lifetimes. So putting enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman means that duality has now been incorporated into the body-mind of humanity. All humanity thereafter will believe itself separate from the divine and will act accordingly, and so we have. We have lived our lives and formulated all of our customs, activities, politics, 
cultures, etc., from an external rather than an internal perspective. We do not know ourselves as one with the divine, but rather, if we think of it at all, we see ourselves as trying to accomplish some kind of connection with the divine, who is otherwise absent from our lives. We see our fortunes as somehow correlative with this notion that we have been left out of the world of all things divine. We see duality translate more fully described by the statement, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's in Genesis 3.15. That statement has caused great consternation among theologians for centuries. Many have connected it to the history of Jesus as a prophecy regarding his conquering Satan at the point of his death on the cross. A closer look, however, reveals something else entirely. This is difficult to determine, but there does appear at first glance to be a switch in pronouns in this address to the serpent from her, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, to he, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. With further study, we find that what has been translated as he shall bruise is actually the word kal, a syntactical use of language representing the most simplified form of action. So we cannot be certain that there was an actual change in pronouns. He shall bruise is two words, kal shup, which essentially means that, that an action was done by someone, not necessarily of any particular gender. Additionally, kal is quite often used for past tense verbs, as in he sat, he ran, she talked. So the futuristic sound of he shall should also be questioned. The word shoot means to bruise, crush, gape upon, desire, seize, strike out, and to fall upon. The word head is rosh, which derives from an unused word meaning to shake. The meaning of rosh is head, top, summit, upper part, chief, total, sum, height, front, beginning, choices, best division, company, or band. Lots of meanings there. The word heel is akeb which means heel, rear, footprint, hinder part, root, hoof, rear of a troop or footstep. That word is rooted in a cob, a primitive root word, which means to supplant, circumvent, take by the heel, follow at the heel, assail insidiously, overreach, hold back, or attack at the heel. What we see clearly here is that the translation to the literal meanings bruise, head, and heel leave out several potential metaphorical meanings that have to do with seizing upon because one desires the chief or first of something, and the last or final part of something. If we put all that together, another possible translation might be something like this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, which will desire and therefore seize all beginnings and ends. Duality, that enmity, that split between the inner and outer world, between consciousness and unconsciousness, has indeed supplanted the fact of our truest divine nature with this perceptual reality. We quite often see the inner receptive world as our enemy. We do not identify as divine beings, but rather as simpletons disempowered to rule our own lives. All of our beginnings and all of our endings have indeed been seized by that perpetual trance state which inserts itself into our minds as reality. So here's what we're saying basically is this. The interpretations, uh, you know, the translations and then the interpretations that have been passed down to us through the centuries might not be accurate. We, we understand the book of Genesis as the, the origin of our understanding of ourselves as human beings. And our understanding of ourselves as human beings is taken from a very literal perspective that has uh, Garden of Eden being a place, not a consciousness, 
and uh, the Adam and Eve being two people, two specific people with the names Adam and Eve, not the first beginning of the masculine and the feminine of human consciousness. Um, and we, we understand the tree of knowledge of good and evil to be a tree that will bring evil as a possibility into the world. Evil meaning immorality, uh, sin. Um, so that's, and we believe that, that God commanded that they not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and that they sinned in eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But as we've seen, the text can be translated very differently from that, where it turns out that, that the serpent did not lie to Eve, he told her the truth, and Eve did not sin by eating of the tree, rather she, she incorporated into the body-mind of duality, uh, of, of humanity. Because she is the inner human, she incorporated into the inner human the duality trans-state, which was foreordained by Elohim, because Elohim originally placed our, our awareness of ourselves as divine in the past, in memory, so that it was not our current awareness, our current consciousness. So now she has this consciousness of herself as separate from the divine, and then she eats the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which incorporates it into the full body-mind of all of humanity. So now we all see ourselves as separate from the divine. That's the metaphor of this story. And the story has rich meaning contextual meaning that, that, that really allows us to see ourselves differently. We are on a massive creative journey. We are here to, to finish the creative process that was begun many, many, many centuries ago. Um, and, and our own psychological, spiritual, and physical evolution is a part of that process. And so every, in every lifetime, as we evolve in lifetime after lifetime, what we're doing is coming to know ourselves deeper and deeper as divine beings. We're coming to understand who we are at a deeper and deeper level. And some people in this current age are beginning to understand that. Some people in other ages have understood it, but now uh, there's, there's large groups of people who are beginning to understand that we're divine beings having a human experience and that, 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 that our truest nature is divine and that we have the power as divine beings to manifest a world that we would like to create. All of the shadow material that's up right now in our politics, with all the misogyny and, and, and homophobia and racism and hatred for other people, places, and, and beliefs, is all about that shadow that we have to become conscious of. It has to raise to our conscious level so that we can put it to rest eventually. And, and that's the journey we're on, to bring up everything that is unconscious to us so that we can become conscious of who we are as divine beings. So we haven't missed a beat. Jesus reminded us of this when he quotes Psalms 82.6 in John 10.34. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? That's, that's a pretty profound statement. And to this date, though I've been to many church services, I have yet to see a pastor preach on that sermon, on that statement. I said you are gods. Also in Psalms, it says that he made us a little lower than God. So, you know, we have this immense power, and, and yet what we've done is project onto uh, this, this Elohim, this God, we've projected onto that uh, some idea that it's a masculine image that has masculine gender, that is, hates us for our sins, and won't let us into heaven if we sin, and 
you know, he has all these human, really dark, really harsh characteristics. In fact, he's a little bit uh, of a borderline personality disorder, that, that, that being. So we've projected that onto him and said that's who he is and that's what the Bible says he is and that's just who he is and that's what we need to learn to live with. And, but our translations, as we can see, can be called into question. And that's what I want to say to you today. I'm just nobody. I don't, I don't have, I haven't been to seminary. I haven't, you know, what I did was I got into an intense uh, study of the root language of the Bible. You can do the same thing. You can understand it for yourself. Don't listen to me. Go look it up yourself. Do the work and see what you discover to be true. And what I think you might discover is that the translations that have been passed down to us are not really accurate. So that's our show for today. We'll be back again next week with more. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week. 